Also, Adela, by the way, just hearing you describe the sermon and almost like give the sermon, maybe you should have been a charismatic preacher. Like, hey, that guy has nothing on you. Honestly, one day, that's my goal. I'm a, I'm a lead a group. My name is Adela Kochav. And I'm Mariam Waba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is Americanish. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Americanish. This week, we'll be talking about a spontaneous burst of religious passion out of Asbury University. Over the last two weeks, the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, which is usually home to about 2,000 students, has seen over 50,000 visitors from across the country and beyond, from Canada to Singapore, that have joined together in prayer and song to partake in what is now being called the Asbury Revival. I am extremely excited for this episode. We're going to answer questions like what is a revival, how did it come about, and what does this tell us about the mental state of Gen Z? Mariam, take it away. So let's start there. What exactly is a revival? I'm sure you all have heard that word on some sort of news or podcast or in an article a couple of times surrounding this specific incident in the last couple of weeks. Um, So we want to break it down for y'all. A revival is a spiritual awakening or renewal that typically takes place within a particular Christian community or congregation. Revivals often involve a heightened sense of religious fervor and a renewed commitment to faith and moral living. And they can be characterized by large emotional and physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, healing, miracles, and spontaneous prayer and worship. Revivals can take many forms as we're seeing play out and have occurred throughout the history of Christianity. They often happen, not so surprisingly, in times of social and cultural upheaval, when people are searching for a deeper sense of meaning on purpose. Revivals can be led by a particular charismatic figure and can arise spontaneously through grassroots movements. These events can have a profound impact on individuals and communities, leading to personal and social transformations. They can also often be very controversial with some questioning the authenticity of emotional and physical manifestations associated with them. However, revivals continue to play an important role in many Christian communities because they provide a space for believers to renew their faith, experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way, and change the way their actions and how they look at the world. Yeah, so this revival um, started actually February 8th. It started about a month ago. And Um, If you're not familiar with Asbury University, uh, students are required to go to chapel at least once a week. And usually they go, they hear a sermon, it's either done by a reverend or by a volunteer in the university. And on February 8th, um, a soccer coach who was a volunteer at the chapel named Zach Mechribs went in and gave a sermon. And he, he said in later interviews he was completely unprepared that day, but he went in and he spoke from the heart and he spoke about love. Um, he, he started off by saying that, you know, we say we love a lot of things and we believe we felt love and we tell people we love them. We tell things we love them. We love coffee. We love our boyfriend or girlfriend. We thought we loved our boyfriend or girlfriend who hurt us. There's so many ways that we throw around the word love, but what really does it mean to love? And I'm not going to get into too many specifics of the sermon. If you haven't heard it, you can hear it on Apple podcasts and it's also on YouTube. But in the sermon, his conclusion ends up being about how what we see as love um, is not real love. And until we've felt the love of God, and he also says, of course, the love of Christ, we can't give love, let alone feel love. 
Um, he also talks, you know, a, a little bit of a trigger warning. He also talks about um, how when he growing up was molested and how he was told by his abuser that that was love. And he learned very quickly that what he was told was love was obviously not love. And, and he says to everyone in the audience, you have gone through hard experiences. You have gone through hard experiences that you thought were love, but that is not love. So open yourself to love, feel love, and only then can you learn to feel love and then again live, give love to others. And, and, and something happened there. In that sermon, if you hear him speak, he's really speaking from passion. And um, a lot of students who had left the sermon early started coming back. People started texting their friends like, hey, come to sermon. This is amazing. And um, by the time the sermon finished, people just started breaking out into song and prayer together spontaneously and students who were passing by started joining and this went on for for hours people kept saying like hey are you still at chapel and they're like yeah it's not done come and this went on basically for the for the full day and then the next morning there were more students there who were ready to listen and this started growing and growing and growing suddenly every student on campus started going to chapel to listen to the sermons and to pray and sing together and then people from nearby colleges and then people from nearby towns and that's when it spread across the country people started driving in from nearby states people in Canada heard about this revival going on in Asbury and they made their way down to Wilmore Kentucky to experience this and then it got to the Christian community of Singapore and suddenly you have people flying in to experience the revival in Asbury and every person who is there explains an energy and everyone is singing together and praying together and listening to the sermons together and not surprisingly or surprisingly, I'm not sure which, this isn't the first time it's happened. Apparently, this is called a revival, and it's not the first revival that's happened in Asbury. Right, yeah. And before I kind of delve into the history of revivals at Asbury, I really want to put a pin in this idea of real love or perfect love as the sermon describes it because it's a really powerful one and it's one I want to dig a little deeper into. Also, Adela, by the way, just hearing you describe the sermon and almost like give the sermon, maybe you should have been a charismatic preacher. Like, hey, that guy has nothing on you. Honestly, one day, uh, that's my goal. I'm a, I'm a lead a group. That's right. So like Adela said, the revival at Asbury is not the first um, of revivals that has happened at the school. In fact, the school claims that they've experienced nine revivals, including the one we'll be discussing today. To paint a clearer picture of the impact of these events, I want to highlight the revival that happened in 1970, which had a huge impact on almost all aspects of this life, uh, of life in the small town and touched hundreds of, of thousands, I might even say, people across the world. At the time, Asbury College was then a small Methodist institution and was facing financial difficulties and declining enrollment. And many students and faculty were searching for a deeper spiritual experience. On February 3rd of 1970, a group of students gathered in college chapel for a prayer meeting. The meeting lasted for several hours, just like the one that Adela just described, and many of the attendees reported feeling a sense of conviction and repentance. This meeting sparked a series of similar gatherings, which eventually led to a full-blown revival on campus. The revival lasted for several weeks and spread beyond the college to surrounding communities, again, like this revival as well. Thousands of people attended the meetings, and many reported experiencing physical and emotional manifestations of the Holy Spirit. I just want to point out here that that was on February 3rd, and this revival that happened now happened on February 8th. 
Like, tell me that's not crazy. Like, tell me it's not weird that in February, in the first week of February, this revival happens in Asbury. And I've spoken to a lot of people who are very spiritual, and they really do believe that there are nexuses in this world that have a certain kind of energy. And if, if you're a non-believer, and that's totally fine, um, it's also known that certain areas have different oxygen concentrations. Their atmosphere is different. There are certain minerals under them that have certain energy. So you can find explanations for it. But the fact that there's been so many revivals in one spot and happens to be that they recur in similar months I think is very significant um and again I'm not Christian I'm Jewish but I do think something funky was happening there and I think it's something that I would have liked you know to to at least see or experience because everyone who stepped foot there was like oh my gosh but yeah February 3rd February 8th I don't know you tell me coincidence or not I sound like a conspiracy theorist but it's it's not a coincidence to me no I don't think so at all and and you know what? Next revival, we're the first ones on the ground. Oh, Adele yeah. and I are heading the next <laughs> revival up, we'll covering it. <laughs> That's right. And we're we're for people listening, we're not in any way making fun of this. We truly believe this was a very special moment mm-hmm. in time and history, and, and the people that are talking about it, um, it's hard to dismiss their feelings and. It's also hard to talk about these revivals without digging a little bit into the theology and exploring mm-hmm. what some of the uh, things that. awakened the attendees were. Um, The particular instance of revival in 1970 was rooted in the theology of John Wesley and the Methodist tradition. Wesley believed in the possibility of what he called Christian perfection, back to this idea that Adela explained of perfect love. Um, And what he meant by Christian perfection is that he he believed believers could achieve a state of perfect love and holiness. And that revival emphasized the need for personal sanctification and the role of the Holy Spirit in transforming believers' lives. The revival also drew inspiration from some of Pentecostal and charismatic movements, which emphasized the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the experience of baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that experience of baptism is one that we can... uh, relate to and find linear relations across almost every Christian denomination. There is a, um, you know, the place where it's believed that Jesus was baptized, the Jordan River. There is a part where you can stand both on the Israeli border and the Jordanian border. And that's a place of huge significance to Christians and non-Christians around the world. People will go there to get baptized or if they've been baptized before and and they've had a personal revival, they'll go there to get re-baptized. Um, and despite its significance, the, uh, this Asbury revival in 1970 was not without critics. Uh, some accused the revival of being overly emotional or manipulative, and others questioned the validity of the physical and emotional manifestations that were reported. These criticisms re- reflect larger debates within the Christian community about the role of emotions in worship and the nature of revivals. Um, if anybody has ever been to uh, a somewhat animated church, and there's some that are more animated than others, you'll find that worship and praise is highly emotional and will bring people to their knees, will bring people to bow down, will bring people to have their hands in the air, and uh, praise and worship tends to be a very emotional, profound thing. Um, But I want to take us back to the revival of today. Um, Now understanding some of the historical context and having fully defined what a revival is, we have to ask ourselves the most obvious question. is this a revival? So that's a great question. And um, I, I have some thoughts. And again, I, I no authority on this. But the way I see it, it depends how you define revival. And I define it after the fact. 
So um, while this was going on, some people were like, oh my God, there's a revival happening in Asbury. And people were, again, singing in unison and people were all making their way to Asbury and to the chapel. And it was very emotional and very spiritually charged. And then it ended on February 23rd. And um, if you look at the history of the other revivals we've talked about, they've also ended. And when you talk to people who were at the Asbury revival that just happened last month, Every single one of them in every single interview has said the revival's not over. They say the revival lives on inside of them. They said maybe we're not gathering every single day, but every kid that started going back to class says that they've been changed. And that's why I would call this a revival because the revival isn't about, you know, reviving anything in particular other than the faith of the people who attended and the people who experienced it, sparking something new. And that's exactly what happened here. So I... I do think like while it was happening, people kept saying, this is being called the Asbury Revival. And that's where the question was, is this a revival? Is this a revival? Now that it's passed, yes, I could say it's a revival because the people who were there have been changed. Something has been revived. So I would say it is. What about you? So it's hard for me to not be a skeptic. Um, So upon first learning about this and upon even doing some of the research, uh, getting us to this point, um, in my head, I'm like, well, if you define something, so you create the word revival, you define it, you give it nice buzzwords and fancy others, um, and you're like, and then a thing happens, and you're like, you know, this is the thing that I just described and I defined a second ago. So for me, my initial reaction is skepticism and and not fully understanding what was happening there. Um, In hearing you kind of explain that you need it to end to define what it is, I think that's the best case I've heard for why this is a revival, Um, because it's one thing to look at it as it was happening in the middle of it, and people were calling it a revival just a couple of days into Mm -hmm. it. Um, it's, it's hard to tell what it is. Maybe if it's just, what if it's a fluke and, and we're both women of faith where people who, uh, practice their religion very regularly, very often. So we're not, you know being skeptical just for the sake of being skeptical, but we're being skeptical because we care. So looking at it as it was happening and calling it a revival, I think would have been a little unwise. Um, But I think your assessment of what was happening and claiming that it's a revival after its end um, is, the again, the best case I've heard for why it's a revival. And seeing the testimonies from people that were attending and knowing that they're lives, their daily lives, how they approach life is no longer the same as it was pre-revival makes me confident saying, oh, yes, this is a revival by the definition that we've set for revival. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk me through some of the controversies that were happening uh, both during the revival and now that we know or or at least agree in this space on this podcast that it was a revival that things are coming up right now? Yeah, so there there was a lot of controversy surrounding this. And I think the first one is just about the idea of something that's messianic. And you touched about this earlier. You said the word charismatic. So one of the controversies going on is that when these revivals happen or where these large bursts of passion happen, it usually is sparked by a sermon, usually. And usually there is a charismatic, a person who gives a sermon like the one I described before that people really resonate with. And the danger with revivals is that people, instead of putting their faith in God, start putting their faith in the messenger. And they start seeing that messenger, seeing the reverend, seeing the pastor, seeing whoever gave that sermon as uh, a messianic figure. 
And that's dangerous right. because that's where you get from the point of, is this a godly religious revival or is this the beginning of formation of what could turn into something like a cult where you're following a person, not an idea. And uh, that was one of the biggest critiques. But if you followed the revival, um, you'll see that different people gave different sermons each day. Each of them was well attended. No one put their faith in a person. Everyone did put their faith, it seems, um, in the idea, in this revival, in the God um, in the idea of practice. So it, it doesn't seem like that turned into something messianic. And again, now we're two, three weeks out and, you know, life has gone on. No one has started following uh, the original sermon giver, Zach Mekribs, who was, again, a volunteer. He was a soccer coach. Um, he didn't build this large following. Of course, his sermons are very well attended, but it doesn't seem at this point in time that that's what happened. And the second is just the general idea of something that would be messianic, right? When they had this revival, was it in the idea that this is going to spark a third coming? I don't know. No one knows. But it was a revival, like I said before, of faith, of people who needed faith in their life, who needed to put their faith in something. And they they did have that revival. So the idea of this, the danger of this being messianic did seem to um congel at least at this point in time a couple of weeks out right um okay so we're dealing with two big words and two big controversies attached to respectively to each charismatic and messianic so i know within my own christian tradition the word charismatic the ideas of a charismatic leader or a charismatic church is generally frowned upon and it's sort of a dirty word because um a lot of orthodoxy is that nothing changes. A lot of orthodoxy, especially oriental orthodoxy, is the practices that we were doing 2,000 years ago in Alexandria are the ones that we do t now, today, in Ridgewood, Queens, in a church. Um, so the idea that any of our theology or our faith-based ideas revolve around a charismatic leader are highly frowned upon. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that within the Jewish communities. And I also want to dig in a little bit into the messianic um, because I have heard that word be thrown around in a lot of Jewish circles in also a dirty way. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk me through that? Yeah. So first let's start with messianic. Um, there's been a lot of talk. So I, for, for anyone who's not familiar with Judaism, uh, Judaism believes that there are messianic figures. For example, we do believe that um, Moses, Moshe, was a prophet that was sent by God to deliver the Jewish people. That is, in a way, a messiah. And we believe that now we're, leave it, we're living in exile and we're waiting for a messiah to come and deliver us to the time of the third temple. And there's different ideas of how exactly that's going to happen. Is a messiah sent? Is it an adult that's just going to come out from the ceiling? Is it a person who's going to be born that's going to have certain leadership qualities that God will give a godly revelation to? There's a lot of different thoughts of what the Jewish messiah will look like. Um, there are some groups of Judaism that, again, we're all waiting for the Messiah to come, but there are some groups that follow a specific rabbi, a specific charismatic, and they're seen as other groups of Jews as being misled or misguided. Um, I know, for mm -hmm. example, Chabad, which is a very large Hasidic movement that I love Chabad. I, I, I want to preface this with um, Chabad, I think, has one of the clearest ideologies. I think that they're very good at communicating their ideas. They're really good at building community. But one thing that they have is the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is a specific rabbi. And there's been a couple of Lubavitcher Rebbe's, like a couple of Rebbe's, um, that had like this like godly understanding and they follow him as a leader but from the outside community you know they have pictures of him in their home they have pictures of him in their wallet um, they read his word 
as if it was scripture. And that's something that from the mm-hmm. outside Jewish communities, we look at it and we say, you're putting your faith in a person and not in God. And it's important to have leaders, but that's an example of where one community um, did take the word of a leader and, and go a little bit far. But again, love Chabad. Obviously, it's not it's not messianic, but it, it's it's a way of following a charismatic that for other Jewish communities can right. be a little bit concerning. And the second was talking about the word messianic Jew. So um, messianic is thrown around in a little bit of a dirty context, quote unquote, or negative connotation in the Jewish community. And that's because messianic Jews are people who are Jewish, who can trace their Jewish lineage, who have full Jewish practice, but they do believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they're perceived differently by themselves, by Christians, and by mainstream Jews. Uh, Christians look at messianic Jews and they say, great, you're Christian. And messianic Jews turn back to them and say, no, we're not. We're Jewish, but we believe in Jesus. So Christians, in a way, claim them as following Christianity, and Messianic Jews take themselves out of that fold. At the same time, Jews look at Messianic Jews, mainstream Jews, look at Messianic Jews and say, dude, you're born Jewish, but you're practicing Christianity. And they say, no, we're practicing Messianic Judaism. So it's it's weird because like the Christians claim them in terms of their faith and tell them, just accept you're Christian. The Jews mm-hmm. accept them in terms of their ethnicity and background and tell them, but you have to admit you're practicing Christianity. And they just kind of take themselves back and say, nope, we're not doing any of that. We are Messianic Jews. We are our own category. So it's interesting right. to see how people perceive themselves and how they're perceived by the communities that they interlap on. Um, the interesting thing here, though, is about the state of Israel. Because um, for everyone who's, not, who's listening who doesn't know, in the state of Israel, if you can prove your Jewish lineage, you have a right of return. You have a right to claim Israeli citizenship. So Messianic Jews, when they come to Israel, the question is, are they Jewish? Are they not? Can they claim Israeli citizenship? And the way the Israeli, the Israeli government handled this was very interesting. Essentially, they said, if you're born Jewish and you can prove your Jewish lineage and Jewish heritage, but you practice Buddhism, you're still a Jew. A Jew is Hmm. a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. So you can claim citizenship if you're a practicing Buddhist who is born Jewish and you're ethnically Jewish. And they treat this the same. They say, look, you can claim, you know, if you can prove your Jewish lineage, it's okay if you believe in Jesus. You can claim your Jewish citizenship. But again, the Jewish Hmm. community sees them as misguided. The Christian community sees them as like, just accept you're Christian. And they kind of keep themselves in the middle. And and this brings up a much larger question about identity. And like, to your point, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Um, And we'll have to dive into this in a whole other Mm -hmm. episode. But like, can a copt, if converted to Judaism or Islam, like, do they stop being a copt? Same, Same way with Jews. Like, if a Jew converts to Islam or Christianity, like, do they stop being Jewish? And this is the dilemma with ethno religions Mm -hmm. is because you're an ethnicity but you're a religion and those two are attached they cannot be unattached um so we'll have to we'll have to dive a little bit into that on a a separate episode and let us know if that sounds like something you're interested in true and interesting i just want to point in so we're we're going to hopefully do a whole episode about conversions but ruth which we believe will be the lineage of the jewish messiah who will come at some point was herself a convert so it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be the Davidic line, but da- David, David, King David, came from Ruth, who was a convert herself. So it's interesting, right? 
this idea of like ethnic Judaism, but also the idea of religious Judaism intermingled with the idea of Messiah. Very wow. interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the other controversies happening uh, post-revival? Yeah, so one thing that really bothered me was, as I was doing research for this, was I was looking up Asbury Revival, Revival in Asbury, you know, Wilmore, Kentucky, and a lot of the articles that were coming up were saying, outbreak of measles among religious gathering in Kentucky. And, of course, you have to report on what's happening. Journalism is about reporting the truth of what's actually going on. But there were so many articles focusing in on this. And the way that they painted the revival was kind of like a backwards gathering that, of course, would end up in a breakout of a crazy old backwards disease that we basically eradicated. And I really didn't like that. Again, I'm not Christian. I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to everything that was going on. But the way that the media treated this and the way they zeroed in on this medical situation just didn't sit well with me because it, I, I feel like the media nowadays has a tendency to cover uh, religion in a way that's very negative. And this to me felt like that. It didn't feel like honest reporting. It definitely had a negative connotation. And again, it's the idea that if you follow religion, then you're going to revive the mumps and the measles. Yeah. And this happens a lot mm-hmm. in Western media in they somehow have a weird tick for faith and religion. And there's just no good way to talk about it that's respectful, but also uh, stays truthful to journalistic um, duties. Um, last time I was in Europe, and in a lot of ways, and I don't know how much I subscribe to this, but in a lot of ways, people look at Europe as kind of like leading the West. So whatever happens in Europe uh, socially is what will come to the U.S. eventually. This Mm -hmm. is what some people say. And I was talking to somebody who's very educated, very smart, member of parliament in Greece. And we were just talking about everything and all things. And I was picking his brain about the state of Christianity in Europe. And he put it so adamantly and so poignantly. And he's saying, like, Europe is in a post-Christian stage. It's in a post-Christian era. There's uh, no way that you can be a person of faith and the person of religion and still be respected or, um, you know, you are frowned upon if you're a person of faith or a person of religion. And that goes across the board Mm -hmm. from in your professional settings and your social settings. And I think that is really scary to a lot of people. Um, And that doesn't mean religion has to be in every aspect of life at all times. I think there's those are both extremes, both Mm -hmm. like no religion at all in any space and religion all the time in all spaces. Those are two very extreme things. And I think there is a happy medium of being able to report on religious things without it being dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, What about evangelism? I have a hard time thinking about something like this, a revival happening and people flying from all over the world to be here for this moment. And uh, you know, the big question of evangelism doesn't pop up that that would be surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like one of the biggest critiques here um, that have been thrown around and we've talked about it a little bit is that this is becoming a little bit culty, right? It's like all these people are flying to one place and they're all worshiping together and they're evangelizing and they're, you know, everyone's feeling it. It sounds, sorry, a little bit culty. It's a little bit scary. It's um, and again, now that we're two weeks out and it hasn't developed into a cult, I feel much more comfortable. But when we first started preparing for this episode, we, we did talk about this idea of like, well, what's the end goal here? And are these people being misled? Yeah. Um, I, I'm glad it didn't turn into that because that would have honestly solidified some of the mm-hmm. dishonest reporting that was happening. Um, so I, I'm 
I don't know. I'm really glad like the survival ended on yeah. a really good note. It and ended I mean, positively. yeah, there's there's a little bit of a buffer a uh, few days to see what actually happens. And I would love to like follow up with a person that experienced the revival like a week from today, a month from today, a year from today. If if you were at the revival, please hit us up. We want to talk to you. Like, I want to know what you felt, how you felt, why you felt it. Um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about Gen Z and their relations mm. to religion because that's been a hot topic for a while now. And as this generation is uh, slowly growing up, I think I'm technically part of Gen Z, but I'm yeah. an old woman also, so it's it's weird. Um, so as as we're seeing the TikTok generation and a huge uh, gap in Gen Z, excuse me, a huge like. Uh, increase in Gen Z entering the workforce, entering higher education, places of higher education, etc. We're talking about Gen Z in a way more uh, real way. Um, so I want to dig a little bit into the relationship between Gen Z, religion, and all things revival. Adela? Yeah. So I, I read a lot of interviews and I heard a lot of testimonials from different students who were at the revival. And these are Gen Z kids, right? So they're, they're Zoomers. They spent their first year or second year of college or their last year of high school on Zoom, fully isolated on their own, living through a scary real-life pandemic, uh, which we as adults, right? I mean, oh, me as adults. So Marim and I are each on the cusp, right? So she's yeah. the cusp of of end of you know late Gen Z, early millennial. I'm I'm the opposite of that. So where if there's a line, we're on each on like either side of it. So mm-hmm. a lot of these kids that grew up in in the COVID era, that was their coming of age. They show up in college and. Everything went to social media during COVID. Everything was about, well, who's traveling? Who's doing this? Everyone's lives are being made public. And Gen Z kids were reporting higher levels of anxiety and depression. And it's something that really worries the adult generation. Everyone looks at Gen Z and says, hey, is Gen Z okay? And Gen Z's like, no, we're not okay. They constantly make jokes about self-hate. They make jokes about how depressed they are. Every single person nowadays is being diagnosed with things like ADHD and depression. And it's it's not about hypochondriacs. It's not about sensitivity. It's about the fact that these kids went through something really difficult at a really formative time in their lives. And Everyone here, like everyone that I heard whose testimonials that were at the sermons and were part of this revival said it filled them with something that they mm. needed that they didn't have before. And it, it's one thing that, you know, I look at my sisters, right? I have two sisters. They're both Gen Z. And one of them, you know, she's Jewish because we're Jewish and she practices and she, of course, believes, but it's not really her thing. And she, I, I do see a lot of the signs of, of the Zoomer generation on her where, you know, she did miss her first year of college. She did miss her senior year of high school. And, and, and you see this kind of sadness. And my younger sister has that too. My youngest sister, she's 17, but she has a different relationship to it, right? So mm. she is the most religious out of all of us. She keeps Shabbat. She keeps kosher. She keeps the holidays. She's very spiritual. She goes to rabbi's classes. She tries to dress modestly. She is a lot more... Re- religious than we are and that's because she placed her faith in something and i think it's um it's something really beautiful and it's something really interesting because i feel like gen z kids are looking for something to follow but they don't know what and if they start worshiping social media if they start worshiping self if they start worshiping influencers and celebrities then they're going to have really empty lives but if they start worshiping god and put their faith in faith then they can't be let down You know what I mean? They have a lot more room to grow. What are your thoughts on this? It's really an awful situation to be because you see everything around you reject faith in all its forms, reject religion in all its forms. And 
there's that void, right? Like, you, it's not something that you can socially acceptably, socially acceptably, is that even a word? Like, go to for for uh, relief. Um, but at the other side of the stick is that, like, there is another void that, like, there's you've experienced real trauma, both with COVID and, like, the world is not necessarily a, a kind and safe place. Not that it ever was, but it's much more real and it's much more accessible to them right now. So the thing that you would naturally go to when you're experiencing anxiety or, or depression or any of these awful things is religion, like faith, having knowing that there is a higher power that's in charge, that there is a plan, that this isn't just we're not mm. just waking up and we're we're you know, part of a greater nihilistic plan where nothing matters, we're all just cogs in the machine. But anywhere they look, religion is bad. Um, I just want to run through some numbers to tell you a little bit about the relationship between Gen Z and religion. Only 26% of Gen Z uh, identify or, or relate uh, or have a religious affiliation compared to 34% of millennials, 41% of Gen Z, and almost 50% of baby boomers. Um, Gen, Gen Z is also... Gen X, did I say Gen mm -hmm. Z? Yeah, 41%. So they're the lowest among the last four to five generations. They Only a quarter of them are identify as religiously affiliated. Um, Gen Z is also more likely than previous generations to be raised in religiously diverse household. Um, according to a 2018 study, 24% of Gen Z respondents reported that their parents have different religious beliefs compared to 21% of millennials. So there's so many more questions for them to answer at a younger age. Um, I can't imagine like not having religion growing up. I always was a curious kid. I always had so many questions. But if I didn't have direct answers or my I wasn't able to comprehend what the answer was, like it was religion. And I can look back and feel really confident and really happy about the experiences I had, the, some of the spiritual experiences and some of the spiritual moments that I had. Yeah, I agree. And, and actually, I, I want to say here that this is one of the reasons why we started the podcast, because when we first met, we started talking about our religion and we both love our religion. We're women of faith that love where we came from. We love our traditions. It doesn't mean we follow blindly. It doesn't mean that we're part of anything that's backwards. But it felt when we were in the outside modern world making our modern lives that religion wasn't respected. And that was one of the things that you and I had in common the first time we met. And that's why I, this episode is so important to me because we started this podcast to show that you can be a woman of faith, a person of faith, and live in a modern world. And that that actually might help guide you in a direction where you're less lost, you have direction, you have a place to ask for answers. And if you can't find an answer, you can turn to faith. And some people might see that as infantilizing. Some people might see that as, you know, if you can't see it, how do you know it's there? People have always made the jokes about God as the imaginary friend. But end of the day, I see it. I see the change. I see my sister feel that her amount of hopelessness is diminished by the fact she has a higher power. And I, I feel that for myself. It, actually, this conversation has made me want to be more religion. How, how crazy is that? We're having a conversation yeah. about religion and I'm like walking out and I'm like, I should be more religious. Like I should, I should, you know, drink my own Kool-Aid at this point because mm -hmm. this is, this is why we started the podcast. Yeah. And it's hard, like it's incredibly difficult to be a person of faith in today's modern world. Uh, you're accepted for everything else you are, generally mm. speaking. You're accepted for your for your gender or lack thereof. You're accepted for your ethnicity or lack thereof. Mm. But when it comes to religion, people are 
sometimes not okay with it and mm-hmm. act really weird when you when I tell them that I'm in church almost every Sunday or that I take communion or I'm fasting and they're like what what are you doing this for and nobody else would question any other aspect of your identity the way they question faith um before we sign off I want to share some of our most powerful and some of our most meaningful spiritual moments Adela, do you want to start uh, sure. Um, so in, in this revival, right, people mm-hmm. spoke about an awakening. People spoke about the fact that they entered this place and they entered this zone where it was a different aura and suddenly they were all struck. And um, I started thinking back and I said, have I had this experience? And I've definitely had it a couple of times, but the the, the most intense for me was um, when I saw the Kotel at night. And it wasn't my first time. I had been in Israel a lot of times. Um, for, for our listeners that don't know, the Kotel is the Western Wall. We believe it's the closest wall that was to the ancient Jewish temple uh, that has since then been destroyed. So it's a, it's a place of holiness for the Jewish people. And again, I'd been in Israel many times. I'd seen the Kotel at night too. I had been there with my family. But um, I went on a high school trip. At the end of high school, my high school takes us all to Israel, all the seniors. And... Um, You know, we had a crazy day of sightseeing. We went up, we went down, we saw a billion things. And all the way at the end of the day, we said, okay, let's go to the Kotel. Let's go to the Wailing Wall. And I'm showing up with all my friends from high school. And somehow I just kind of broke away from the pact or or, or the pact kind of dispersed. And I stood and I saw the, the Western Wall and it was dark and it was lit up at night. And I don't know why, but I felt something. I, I hadn't felt that before. And I, and suddenly I started crying. I just felt like I was by myself and I moved closer to the wall and I found a space and I just put my head to the wall and I started weeping. And it was crazy and it was scary and I wasn't asking for anything. I wasn't praying. I wasn't, you know, thinking about things I was thankful for. My mind was blank. The only thing I felt was emotion, just plain, simple emotion. And that was a crazy experience for me crazy experience and then you know after I I don't know how much time at some point someone tapped me and was like hey Adela we're gonna head out and I was like oh yeah I have to get back to the group and it was just kind of like that was it but I had this moment with myself and God and that was a crazy moment for me what about you wow Um, I mean, it's not so surprising that both of our most profound spiritual moments are in the holy city of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, If you guys have ever heard of Jerusalem Syndrome, if not, Jerusalem Syndrome is an actual psychological Mm. disorder that people have been diagnosed with. And it happens when people visit Jerusalem for the first time or for the hundredth time and something overtakes you and that you think you're part of the biblical stories. Um, And a lot of people experience it um thankfully it's not never been that strong for me where i feel like i'm a part of a biblical story per se but yeah exactly exactly so every time i'm in jerusalem i especially in the old city of jerusalem and i've been to the hotel a couple i've been lucky enough to go to the hotel a couple times and it's a little different for me being a christian but i i do feel a different presence there especially like on shabbat where everybody's there first of all i'm surprised you're lucky to get your head on the wall it's like mayhem there but um there is a certain air in jerusalem for me where i feel like something else somebody else is in control and all i have to do is figure out what my purpose is how i'm gonna make this world a better place in my lifetime and that's all i have to worry about i don't have to worry about what time i have to wake up tomorrow i don't have to worry about my job what school i don't have to worry about anything else except how i'm gonna make this world a better place Um, 
And with that being said, I truly miss Jerusalem. In fact, today, I was really especially missing Jerusalem for the, all the wrong reasons, by the way. There's a great uh, falafel sandwich in the Old City that I was really craving for lunch today, but that's a different story. Um, okay, let's wrap up. Uh, so whether this was a revival or not, and whether you think it was a revival or not, um, or whether you think it was a hoax, the important thing here is that people are turning to faith. They are allowing faith into their life and destigmatizing what it means to be religious. This stigmatization can lead to, uh, excuse me, this destigmatization can lead to increased acceptance and understanding among all people of different faiths and can help us foster a more pluralistic and safe society. While revivals may have critics, they have played an important role in the history of Christianity and continue to impact the lives of believers around the world. Thank you for listening, and as always, you can continue to support us by subscribing to our Instagram for $5 a month so we can continue to make content like this. See you next week.